0: In 1948, my branch of the Patterson family went into exile. My grandfather, who had been born in Falkirk, who worked out of Glasgow, took his wife and his son to a strange and foreign land, and they settled in a place called Dovercourt on the Essex coast. It was there his son met and married a Sassanat girl, and they started their own family. And all their three sons knew of the promised land was the kilt their father possessed, which, as far as I can remember, was only ever worn uh, when it came to boys' brigade camps and was flown regularly from the flagpole uh, there. The boys integrated into this strange culture and began speaking with London accents and culturally felt thoroughly English. And then exactly 70 years after the Patterson family first went into exile, the eldest of those three sons returned to the promised land, to be a pastor in a place called Charlotte Chapel. But what a strange land he found it to be. Cues outside Gregg's, soup for every meal, external doors left open, not talking to strangers, at least in some cities, an overly optimistic view of their national football team, and words that needed translating, eating a geely piece on a drich day, I I understand uh, that is Scottish. Okay, maybe I'm overdoing it a a bit, but to help in our studies in Ezra, Nehemiah, we need to get into the mindset of the exiled Jews in Babylon. You see, it was two to three generations before they were able to return to their homeland, having been driven into exile 70 years earlier. And their journey was so much more than just a few hours down the M74 and M6 or A1, M1. It took Ezra four months to travel 900 miles around the Arabian desert to get to Jerusalem. And the vast majority of those who made that journey had never been outside Babylonia. They'd been born there. They only heard passed down stories of their ancestral homeland. Even one of the leaders of those who returned had the name Zerubbabel, which literally means born in Babylon. So here was a motley collection of about 50,000 people trying to settle back into this strange land that Almighty God had promised them. Well, what were they to do? Would they just continue with some of the Babylonian traditions that they had been brought up with? Would they include some of the elements of worship that they'd grown used to, worship to Marduk, the Babylonian god? Or maybe they'd just let each family do what they thought was most convenient. Maybe it was just pretty relaxed and laid back. Well, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is here to show us how they deliberately position themselves as God's people. Jehovah rules. His purposes continue. So it's not as if they're doing a new thing, but rather they see themselves as standing in the stream of God's plan to set apart for himself a people who will display his glory. You see, the exile, that time in Babylonia, wasn't an aberration. God hadn't forgotten or got it wrong. His work was going on. And this is pointed out very deliberately to us in three particular ways throughout this book of Ezra, Nehemiah. Number one, they returned like the exodus they returned like the exodus you see this book is full of references that are deliberately there to make you think of the exodus from Egypt when the first uh, as it were the Israelites having gathered in Egypt been put into slavery but then gathered by Moses to go into the promised land it's there deliberately throughout this book to make you think of this, so to understand the continuation that there is in Ezra and Nehemiah. It comes over in a number of ways. For example, gifts from neighbors. In Ezra 1 verse 6, we read, All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Now, why is that there? Why was that recorded for us? Well, it was very deliberately recorded. Now, Jewish readers immediately would have started saying, yeah, that rings a bell. Didn't that happen in the Exodus? And maybe if you're familiar with your Bible, you'd have been going the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the Exodus. In fact, Exodus 12, verses 35 to 36. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. You see, gifts from neighbors. Yeah, it's the the exodus all over again. We're part of that same people. And then Passover celebrations. You see, just as the first returnees celebrated the Passover after completing the temple, we read about that in Ezra 6. That's what the Israelites did before they exited Egypt. It's there in Exodus 12 to 13. Same thing. We're meant to think, ah, there's a connection. Well, how about temple supplies? We read this in Ezra 2, 68. When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings towards the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. And again, if you're familiar with the story of the people of Israel, you'll be going, yeah, I know that. Exodus 35, verses 20 to 21. Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence. And everyone who was willing and whose heart had moved them came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work of the te- on the tent of meeting for all its service and for the sacred garments. It's the same thing that's happening. It's deliberately there. So we go, oh, yeah, I get it. What about building materials? Did, did, did this have an echo with you as we heard uh, Ezra read to us, Ezra 3, 7? Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. Did that ring a bell? It should have done. 2 Chronicles 2, 15 to 16. You've got a guy called Hiram who is king of Tyre, one of these regions referred to. He's writing to King Solomon and he says, Now let my Lord send his servants the wheat and the barley and the olive oil, Ooh. and the wine, he promised, and we will cut all the logs from Lebanon that you need and we'll float them as rafts by sea down to Joppa. You can then take them up to Jerusalem. Wow, same thing. It's there deliberately for us to see and there are many more references we could see if we had the time so this was a return to the exodus this was a reminder of who they were what happened there with Ezra and Nehemiah going back to that land this was a continuation of the purposes of God and these references are there deliberately for us to understand that so they returned like the exodus but then secondly I noticed they worshipped according to the law they worshipped according to the law you see, as part of reestablishing establishing themselves as God's people, they quickly began to reestablish the worship of God according to what was written in the law. Let me go back to Ezra 3 that we were reading from earlier. Then Joshua, son of Jozadak, this is verse 2, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it. Now get it. In accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. It wasn't a case that they said, hey, when we were in Babylon, we well, I just love the architecture. Didn't they have some really clever designs? Why don't we incorporate that into what we want to do? You know, a bit of an altar there, and we can put some statue. No, 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 no. No, no, no. This is a continuation of God's work, a continuation in God's word. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrifice burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals, the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought by free will offerings to the Lord. By the way, this was a problem they never had in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, uh, interference. Do I need to do anything? I, uh, forgive us if at home you're getting any interference. We're just certainly getting some uh, here. It, we're tight in, I promise you. Ancient preachers used to have sounding boards, by the way. You may wonder at times how they did that. And uh, I ever wonder if those sounding boards, okay, it's not screwed in, but that maybe was the problem. Did a sounding board ever collapse? Did they ever have this? Did they ever have to stop their preaching uh, a century ago? I don't know. We have had to. But the point is, what's happening here is what the people did when they went back to Jerusalem in the worship of God was to continue as if they had never been away. The same rituals and rhythms of their corporate worship are reintroduced. So we've seen they returned like the Exodus. They worshipped according to the law. But then the third element of this deliberate continuity that the writer wants to highlight is this, they were led by a new Moses and a new Joshua. Because Ezra here is deliberately portrayed for us as a new Moses. In uh, his genealogy at the beginning of chapter 7, they show that this Ezra is directly related to Moses. Chapter 7 verse 5, you'll see he's a descendant of Aaron, who of course was Moses' older brother. And then Ezra stages, he he deliberately, this is a setup, Ezra stages the return of his party from Babylon to Jerusalem to mirror the exodus of God's people from Egypt. He's going, hey, look, it's just the same. Look at the timing, chapter 7, verse 9, they left on the first day of the first month. Oh, that's exactly the same as the timing of the exodus. Look at the need for Levites. We read this in chapter 8, verse 15. I assembled them at the canal that flows towards the harbor, and we camped there three days. When I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. So what? Why the panic? Why the need to get Levites Because actually it was the Levites who carried the tabernacle implements on their first exodus. We're told that in Numbers chapter 10. And Ezra is going, how can we be this exodus if we don't have the people to carry the stuff back as they did in the original exodus? And then look at the three-day rest upon reaching Jerusalem. Chapter 8, verse 32. It mentions they rested for three days. Why? Why that small detail? It's because that's what Joshua did with the Israelites before they crossed over to the promised land. So so do you get it? And and I could say there are actually many other details that I could have mentioned. Not least how Joshua is pictured. uh, Nehemiah is pictured as the new Joshua. But I've mentioned these so that we get this one big overriding issue. The writer wants us to see that those returning from exile, they weren't doing something brand new. They weren't doing something original. They were carrying on in the purposes of God for his glory. Now, why do I mention these things? It it may seem a really small point to draw out from this book. And yet it is one, I think, that's more important now than ever. We saw last week how this book pictures a a situation so similar to our own. You see, they were a small group of God's people surrounded by enemies on all sides who were trying to take a stand for the one true living God. So are we. Relative to the population, born-again Christians are a tiny minority. We don't set the rules. We live, we serve in Edinburgh, most of us. But we know we follow a different king. And we march to a different drumbeat. And he's the king of kings. And we know our king is Returning, and we know our king is going to bring about the restoration of all things. So how should we live for his glory in the meantime? Knowing that God is working out his purposes, that he rules, we're living here and now, how should we live? How should we live as this tiny, embattled minority in Edinburgh? Well, like the returning exiles... I think there are a number of lessons that we need to learn. The first one is this, we are part of something bigger. We're part of something bigger. You see, there were only 50,000 of them, and yet they saw themselves as inextricably connected to God's big story. You know, there was the Persian Empire having overthrown the Babylonian Empire, all the swathes of power politics that were going on and the hundreds and thousands of millions of people who were living at that time. And here's 50,000 of them surrounded there in the Persian Empire. And they're going, we're here for a purpose because God reigns. They knew they were the chosen people. They knew they were the people who had been set apart by God for his glory. You see, they were continuing what God had done through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They were part of the same people who had come out of Egypt under Moses and into their promised land under Joshua. They'd been entrusted with God's law. They'd been entrusted with the richly symbolic practices of the temple. And they lived in the expectation, as Habakkuk put it, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. They knew. God was going to restore all things. They knew. And we stand in the same stream today. We're God's chosen people. It sounds an arrogant thing to say, but if you've been saved by his grace, you are part of that continuing story. We've been set apart for his glory. We're part of the Holy Catholic Church As we prayed earlier, meaning, or said earlier, meaning all gods rescued people in all places over all time. My friends, we're part of something bigger. You see, statistics suggest that now one-third of the world's population is Christian, although much of that will be nominal. But a safer figure would be that half a billion of the world's population of 8 billion, seriously follow Christ as Lord. And that figure is growing. Especially in Africa and South America. And, and you're part of that. We're, we're part of what God is doing. And probably more people will be born today than on any other day in world history. That's the growth of the church, that's what we are part of as God continues his big story to glorify himself through his son. So although in the West secularism is on the rise, albeit at a slowing pace, we remember we're part of the bigger thing God is doing for his glory around the world. We believe that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. That's why as a church, we're committed to cross-cultural mission. And we long that more and more of us would want to be an active part of what God is doing. God is saving men and women from every tribe and nation. He is building his kingdom. This is his story. It's got its beginning. It's got its end. There is this glorious trajectory. God is saving people and we're saying be part of that. And could I say that's why as a church, we call people back to corporate worship after the distancing of the pandemic months. See, we need to see, we need to experience that we're part of something bigger. My friends understand this, and can I especially address my friends who are looking at the live stream. We're not just individuals consuming a product. We're part of the family of faith celebrating his grace. And part of that is we do it together. And we gather together and and we show together that we are part of this stream of God's purposes. Could I just say, for those of you who have young kids, how vital that our kids see the gathered church. How vital our kids see that they're not part of this individualistic western society. But, but rather they are part of the community of faith that God is building. And how important that as restrictions lift, as probably they will be doing in due course, as we are able to gather in fuller numbers that we are here and that as families we are here and our youngsters are seeing that we here gather as the people of God, part of what God has been do- doing down through the millennia for his glory. Okay, the second thing I want to say by way of application is this. We're joined to Christ's saving work. We're joined to Christ's saving work. You see, the first thing the returnees did when they got back to Jerusalem was to rebuild the altar. It was to celebrate the Passover. This was central to their life. They wanted to reestablish those ceremonies that pictured how a holy God would deal with sin how our holy god would rescue sinners so for example in ezra 6 verse 19 we read this on the 14th day of the first month the exiles celebrated the passover the priests and levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean the levites slaughtered the passover lamb for all the exiles for their relatives the priests and for themselves So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. You see, this was central to Jewish life. This is what God had revealed. There was was a way of salvation. It was through God's way and it was pictured there in the Passover meal. And it was all pointing forward. They knew it was pointing forward. They celebrated it with joy, but they knew it was pointing forward to that final sacrifice to the Messiah who they know had been promised. So we sense the elation of John the baptizer when about 450 years later, he saw Jesus. John 1, verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And as John goes on to record the events of Christ's crucifixion, he keeps using this Passover language, pointing out that Jesus was crucified at the very same time the Passover lambs were being sacrificed in the temple. John points out that hyssop, Branches were lifted to the lips of Jesus with a sponge on top so he could cry out, it's finished. Why does John record that detail? It's because hyssop branches were used to paint the doorposts with the blood of the lamb at the first Passover. Why does John record that none of Christ's bones were broken? It's because that's what happened to the Passover lambs. Little wonder the Apostle Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 that, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed and Peter in 1 Peter 1 18 to 19 declares that God's people are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect you see it's it's all about God's way of salvation that had been promised that had been pictured that had been enjoyed they celebrated the Passover Jesus came And ever since, we have gone on remembering that perfect fulfillment of the Passover, and that's what we're going to be doing in a small period of time. That's why I I do hope you have uh, something with which we're able to share communion, to remember, so that we are standing in that same stream. What we're going to be doing as we celebrate communion is to be part of what they did when, when... The Passover celebrations first took place in the Exodus. It is part of that same stream of God's salvation story. And we position ourselves within that. We look back. We love to share communion. You see, they looked forward in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah to the coming, to the promised Messiah. We look back to the work of Jesus Christ we just love to remember his work. We love to join the countless thousands who have done the same over the years. You may say, oh, we're going to do communion. It's one of the greatest pri- privileges that we have uh, as God's people. This isn't just something we do in this building twice a month. This is us taking our stand with all God's people, centering ourselves around Jesus, recognizing again that our core life and identity is in him. My friends, we're part of something bigger in Christ. Third thing I want to say is this, we're built upon God's unchanging truth. We're built upon God's unchanging truth. You see, the returnees were scrupulous about following God's instructions. They weren't there to make it up as they went along. And as we noted last week, the climax of the book is when the people gather together to hear the covenant, the law of Moses, read to them. Let me just read from Nehemiah 8, from verse 2. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Uh, In fact, the following day, as they were continuing to hear about the book of the law, uh, they heard about the fact that they should be building booths. It was one of those ceremonies that had been instituted to help people remember that uh, the people of Israel had traveled through the wilderness and had to live in tents and booths. So what did they do? Did they go, well, that sounds a pretty weird thing to do. That was them. No, they immediately went and did that. That's what God's Word says. That's what we will do. And my friends, the Apostle Paul tells the new believers in Ephesus, who who are Gentiles, he said, look, you are Gentiles, you've been saved by God, and you are being built into this faith community. You're part of the same thing. You're part of the bigger story. Just listen to Ephesians 2 from verse 19. Paul writes, consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. And also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Do you see that? We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets this is what we're a part of here's how we connect see we're not here to make it up for ourselves we're not here to bend to the shifting winds of public opinion we're not here to change bible truths to suit others And I say this because Paul Bayes, the Bishop of Liverpool, in a very recent talk said this, the church should follow the world's agenda, which he claimed was superior to the morality revealed in the Bible. No, no. Our foundation is a different one. And this church will not move away from preaching and teaching and carefully applying the timeless revelation of God's word. To quote Martin Luther, here we stand. We can do no other. So help us God. Okay, fourthly, we're continuing to declare his glorious praise we're continuing to declare his glorious praise did you notice how when the foundation of the temple had been laid they sang praise to god it was part of our reading earlier ezra 3 10 to 11 when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the lord the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the levites the sons of asaph with symbols took their place to praise the lord as prescribed by david king of israel With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And what's interesting about this song that they sang is that it's a quote from Scripture. It's from 1 Chronicles 16, 34. But actually, it's been slightly altered to fit their own situation. It's based solidly on biblical truth, but with a special emphasis on Israel. Now, look, I don't want to make more of this than I should, but when Christians get together, the natural overflow of their emotion is to sing truths. This is certainly what happens to the church at Colossae. Colossians 3.16, where Paul writes to them, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So when we get the opportunity to properly sing again as a gathered congregation, it's not that easy at the moment, is it, with our 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 masks and the instructions not to uh, sing out loud. Uh, When we do get together to sing properly, we'll continue singing Bible truth. Some of it may be directly from the Bible, especially the Psalms, but other songs will take Bible truths and arrange them in new and helpful ways as they did in the time of Ezra. And could I say we mustn't fall into the trap of judging a song by its musical accompaniment? I know that's so easy to do. See, we want songs that are set to tunes and styles that are appropriately relevant. Some you'll find helpful. Others you may find different to your own musical taste. But that's not the point. The big question is, are we singing biblical truth. For when we do, we are connecting to centuries of praise and worship, going back at least to the song of Moses that was recorded in Exodus 15 that Callum read to us. We are in that tradition. We are continuing. This is what God's people do. We sing his praise. We sing his truth. You see, we're connecting to something bigger than us. That's why I asked for us to say the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed was first written about 390 A.D., but we've said it together. That's why we sing Isaac Watts hymns from the 17th century, why we sing Charles Wesley hymns from the the 18th century, why we sing Keith Getty hymns and other hymns from today. They stand in this line And so do we, as we worship together. And my friends we will seek to avoid the arrogance that disparages anything written before a particular date. That just displays a failure to engage with the glorious connection we have with the ways that Bible truth in the past was expressed. But I must hurry on. My final point is this. We're going back for the future. We're going back for the future. See, how did Ezra and Nehemiah work out what to do in leading the returnees as they settled in the land? Did they slavishly copy Persian governmental practices that they were familiar with, both of them? No, nothing of the sort. They went back so they could build forward. They went back to the history of how God led their people. They went back to... The covenant and law that had shaped Jewish life in the past. And on that foundation, they built for the future. And how are we to live today? What should shape our thinking and behavior? Do we unthinkingly buy into the woke culture of our day? Do we cave in to the pressure of internet trolls? Or maybe the temptation is, is this do we even hide behind the slogans and assumptions of right wing shock jocks? And we rattle off their placards as if that's Bible truth. No, 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 no. No, we, we must go back for the future. We go back to the ever relevant truth of God's Word. We anchor our lives upon this Word rightly understood. We center our lives upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We display his purity and passion, his mercy and grace, his holiness and beauty. We go back for the future. And just as we won't despise the songs of the past, even if their tune's great on our ears, neither will we despise the lessons and encouragements of the past. How good to have a working knowledge of God's dealings in the past. How many lessons we can learn for our encouragement by understanding something about godly characters from the past. How richer our experience will be in grasping that our gracious eternal God has always been working throughout time. How good to see his fingerprints over everything. Everywhere. How encouraging to understand afresh that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose. My friends, God is at work. This is His story. My brothers and sisters, I have to tell you this this has been a strange message to preach. And yet, if I'm to be faithful to Ezra and Nehemiah and the numerous references to this truth, then I have to remind you again to keep anchored in the work of Jesus and in the Word of God. And if you're listening here in this congregation or listening to us online, as someone who doesn't have a real trust in what Jesus accomplished, i plead with you to see that you're more than just an accidental collection of molecules in a meaningless universe you're part of something bigger something with meaning and purpose something with a beginning and an end and God invites you to find your place to find uh, to recognize your rebellion against him to throw yourself upon him for his mercy to rest completely in what Jesus accomplished for sinners like us on the cross of Calvary. To know for you a new beginning, a new exodus, a new leaving of the past, so that you can follow a new king who is good and who is glorious. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that although... We gather here, just a relatively small number in these pandemic regulations. Father, we thank you that we are part of something bigger and greater. Thank you that we are part of your big story that you have been working out. And Father, we just long and pray that each of us would be those who are shaped by your word. We, We know how easy it would be to be shaped by the spirit of the age. So modern, so immediate, so selfish. Father, help us to understand that by your grace, you've incorporated us into something glorious and big. And we're able to remember your wonderful work of grace, demonstrated down over the centuries. Help us to be wise in that. And Father, for those listening who who don't know Jesus yet as their Lord and Saviour, who just feel their life is going nowhere and is pretty pointless, Father, please, may they see the wonderful purpose, the wonderful plan that you are working out, the wonderful story that is being told for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.